everybody. Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm a developer here at SmartLogic. We're a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. Joining us is special guest Brooklyn Zelenka from the Special Projects and Decentralized Engineering Company, or SPADE. How are you doing today, Brooklyn? I'm doing very well, thanks. Great. And How are you doing? I'm doing lovely. And we're also joined by one of my colleagues, the infamous Eric Ostrich. How are you doing today, Eric? Pretty good. Awesome. So we're going to jump right into it. Our first series is covering Phoenix and Elixir in production. And I want to hear from Brooklyn a little bit about your background, the company that you're working at, how you got started with Phoenix and Elixir. You just give us the, the broad strokes. Yeah. So got started with Phoenix and Elixir years ago, maybe 2014, looked at Erlang prior to that. Uh, very interested in functional programming pretty much from the starting of my career. Uh, I started using Phoenix, I believe, just a few weeks after 1.0 was released in production. Did a bunch of client work with it, was very happy with it, and sort of spread Phoenix everywhere that I could. Uh, ended up teaching classes on it, workshops, doing corporate training, etc. These days, uh, company that I'm at, we're doing more uh, R&D in the blockchain space, specifically uh, working on uh, the Ethereum virtual machine and uh, some some pieces around that, uh, especially around correctness. Yeah. Very cool. And do you want to maybe give us a quick overview of some of the Elixir projects that you've put into production over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for clients, I've done uh, search app for local is all in uh, Phoenix. Um, we did uh, something for a local company here uh, called uh, Intersection Consulting that was looking for essentially a dashboard, uh, Notarize, which is kind of neat. They have a system where you can get documents notarized and sometimes like, you know, drive to some, uh, you know, distant strip mall and, you know, wait in line to get something stamped. You can just have a little video pop up and they can look at your documents and do everything real time. So all the real time stuff there is uh, in straight Elixir with, I think we used one or two pieces from uh, from Phoenix, but not the full framework. Uh, and then I've also done a little bit of backend work for uh, Uber as well. And do you want to maybe talk about Elixir a little bit and you know why you chose to use it on those projects? Yeah. So. Elixir, obviously, long history in telecom and real-time, soft real-time. So all of these projects had some real-time element in them. So, you know, commenting, liking in real-time, etc. Much more performant than Rails, which is what most of these teams were coming from previously. You know, high uptime guarantees are nice to have, but weren't a strong constraint in these projects. But, you know, still, still helpful. And then uh, it's just... The developer experience is just fantastic, right? Everything just feels good. You don't get, you know, everything parallelizes very nicely. You don't get stuck into the same traps that people have been getting trapped in, especially with OO programming uh, over the past, you know, especially 10 years. So, and of course, you know, a lot of people are looking to learn something new and develop their careers. And this is a, you know, a nice, easy step to do that. So it's, you know, Elixir is not the fastest language. It's not the safest, you know, it doesn't have a strong type system, you know, all these different things, but it fits a really nice point in the design space of being fun to use, very readable, performant enough, and, uh, you know, really designs for, you know, more industrial applications, something that's not going to go down. 
And Eric, feel free to jump in here with any uh, questions or thoughts that you have. Uh, I, I really, so before we started the conversation, we also sent you some of these questions that we'd be asking, and, and um, you sort of hit some bullet points there. Um, I was curious if you could, because one of the number one benefits that we talk a lot about is the performance, but you're saying it's not exactly the fastest. I'm wondering, like, under what circumstances is it optimal to use a language like Elixir um, because of the performance, uh, or, or wh- maybe a better question is, when would the performance not be adequate? Mm. So response times are good, but it's not really designed for fast turnaround, right? It's more designed for throughput, right? So, you know, you have these you know, wide parallel systems. It runs, I think, 20 times slower than C, for example. And you have much faster languages in the functional programming realm as well, you know, Scala, Haskell, F-sharp, OCaml, you know, uh, et cetera, especially OCaml does, does very, very well. It's much faster than Ruby, Python, yeah. you know, yeah, I was, I was going to add that, like, we came from a Rails shop, and so, like, seeing response times in, like, microseconds is like, sign me up. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, and... And, and it is great, right? So for like a web use case, it's fantastic, yeah. right? Um, it's, it is slower than say Node, right? But uh, it's, the experience is so much better, right? The tooling's great, everything comes out of the box. The, um, the documentation is, is, you know, really full and rich. You know, it just feels good to use. And if you're doing this eight hours a day, sometimes more, you know, you wanna use something that you know, that you can really trust in and, and enjoy. And then in addition, you get the parallelizability, the, you know, you can do lots of things with load balancing. If you take the time to set up supervision tree, though, Phoenix kind of comes with a nice one out of the box, but you know, you have nice uh, uptime guarantees. You know, you do have to watch for thrash in the system, but uh, you know, the server's not going to go down. Right. Mm. And then you have the nice stories, you know, it's fairly easy to sell to shareholders. So, um, you know, it really hits this nice point in the design space. So speed isn't everything. If speed was everything, we'd all be writing Fortran. <laughs> or assembly. <laughs> That's great. Um, I also like that you point out uh, that it's designed for 2019. Yes. Uh, I think yes. that's a good... Yeah, TF8 supports. You know, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff off the CLI. You know, REPL-driven development is huge. You know, just being able to pop in and really quickly test a couple things out, really important you know, TDD tools built in by default, right? It's just all the best practices that we have from today. And a lot of the Phoenix team comes from the Rails, previous Rail core team. Uh, and they're taking a lot of the learnings with them. Mm. And, and you can really see it. Mm. Eric, do you want to maybe start asking some of the uh, higher level questions, system level questions? I'm, I'm curious what Brooklyn's going to tell us about her experience there. Sure. So I guess the the first place to start, I guess, like, what have you used to to actually host these applications? Pretty much across the board, it's been AWS and um, a little bit of Heroku. Uh, So typically, you know, doing a little demo or something quick. Heroku, uh, AWS for actual deployments, both running directly on the server and then also Dockerized because, you know, Kubernetes is the new hotness. So So for Heroku, do you just use just a like mix phx.serve is that or is there anything fancier yeah so you do have to it doesn't have support for elixir straight out of the box uh you do need a build pack which is getting a lot better <laughs> over the years uh at the beginning it was a little bit rougher and it does have to build like the whole thing yeah. it wasn't caching you know, so it would take take quite a while to do each build 
these days, it's it's pretty straightforward. I even have is that yeah, I believe open source um, on uh, on GitHub. I have a repo called uh, Uprun, which I used as demos for when I taught classes. That gets hosted on Heroku, and so it has the build pack configuration right in there. We can just copy paste that. It's whatever two three lines. And so you you mentioned Docker. Is that how you typically deploy? Do you use any kind of like from the Rails community, we had like Capistrano and like kind of stuff like that. Do you use anything like eDeliver or is it just like straight Kubernetes, whatever goes on in that world? <laughs> yeah, so uh, straight Kubernetes stuff. And that's typically coming from requests from clients who dockerized their entire infrastructure, right? And their DevOps team, you know, has bought, bought that whole way of doing things. So, you, you know, you wrap it and, and serve it that way. It makes some things easier, some things harder, right? You have to get the ports all wired up. I hear a lot of complaints from people in, you know, on the beam in general with Docker saying, well, you know, like it already does these things. And that's yeah. that's great, right? It's like, you know, we have the automatic restarts and, you know, auto scaling, all of that, that nice stuff, but it doesn't solve it in general. It solves it only for things on the beam. So if your database, you know, sitting off to the side, yes, you could, have that supervised uh, directly, but Docker's becoming the industry standard. So it's one less thing that you have to worry about as a developer, and you can hand that off to a DevOps team if you have one, which is great. Yeah. Sort of going along with that, do you use anything like libcluster? I know there's Kubernetes like built-in options to do clustering. Do you do any clustering, or is it like each node is its own thing, and it's load balance like above? Yeah. Uh, so load balanced above, and then we've explored doing clustering for some applications, but it just didn't didn't really fit for these yeah. you know sort of more consumer apps, right? Mm. You know, especially if you're on AWS and you can just stick a load balancer in front of the whole thing, yeah. right, and just serve requests. It, it's just a very standard. It's cool that Elixir can do all this stuff for you. It's great, and it means that you you know have less overhead, you know, widespread of tools to to learn. But if you already have a team that knows these things and has a, a way of doing it, it's nice that you can still lean back on on the way that people are used to doing things, right? Yeah. Which is again this uh, you know nice developer experience, this DX. Are are you able to get any zero downtime deploys the with your setup? Yeah. So have looked at them, have done a couple tests just to see you know how does. How, how does this work? Is this is this interesting? It's very cool when it works. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty, you know, it's very flashy, but it is a ton of work, right? Even in the simple case, when you can kind of, you know, just use like the distillery based thing and it, you know, it works, that's great. But as soon as you have anything, even just slightly more complex, it's just, you know, so if you can do a rolling deploy, do it. And that's great. I was even talking to um, Robert Birding, uh, one of the original creators of Erlang. And I was asking him, so, you know, how are your zero downtime deploys going, right? Your your hot updates. And he says, oh, you know, it's su- such a pain, even for him, you know, 95% of the time, just do a rolling deploy. And it's just, you know, it's just easier. If you're working for Ericsson and you can't have your, you know, uh, your network switch go down, then absolutely, it's worth the uh, worth the extra time. But yeah. you know, if you don't have a nine nines of uptime SLA, you know, a, <laughs> you know, if you do, maybe check that contract again and rewrite one. Uh, <laughs> and two, um, taking a second or two, literally, to do a a rolling deploy, you know, it's fine. Yeah, 
early on in my figuring out Elixir, there's a book called Designings for Scalability with Erlang and OTP. And in it, it was like, you can do hot upgrades, but you're probably a small startup where no one cares if you're down for a second. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even for some of these larger clients, right? So doing, um, you know, App Store app, right? Uh, Lonely Planet Trips. If that goes down for 50 milliseconds, no one will really notice or they'll retry to upload or, you know, their comment yeah. will say, oh, no, that didn't go through. Please try again. And nobody will really see. It's not like it's happening once every hour. It's happening twice a year, you know, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, do you have any more questions on the sort of high level system stuff before we move on to maybe a little bit lower level architecture kind of tooling? Yeah, I, I guess I guess the last the last question would be um, like, how does this compare to? You've mentioned you've done some rail stuff. Like, how does it compare in terms of uh, response time, throughput, kind of any anything in about uh, the two systems? Yeah. So I get asked this a lot because when I'm especially when I'm teaching, people are coming in from Rails and they've heard that Elixir is the better Ruby and Phoenix is a better Rails, right? And really the trade-off is, yes, you have better throughput, but much better response times, honestly, easier testing, you know, like there's a huge number of benefits, but a smaller ecosystem, right? So there isn't a gem for everything. Yeah, uh, that's, that's almost which, a benefit as well. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. It's mixed. It's, it's a bit of both. And also being a bit of a younger ecosystem, though, it's building up quite a bit more now. Uh, but, you know, back in my day, you know, walking uphill both ways, you know, it, there was a lot of stuff to, to be built out, right? You could write error handling libraries, you could do JSON parsing, you know, all the basics. And there's something exciting about that, being able to say, yeah, we're the dev shop that built, you know, well-used library X, yeah. right? And it's a way to generate um, uh, incoming traffic as well, right? Um, anyway, this uh, Rails mutation, right, that, that Phoenix has, you know, it's the, it's the new Rails, uh, also hurts because it works quite a bit differently, right? And especially Elixir versus Ruby, right? Uh, really create an object, and that yeah. isn't what we have, right? Where they'll start doing like, oh, well, I'm just going to, you know, use a visitor pattern, like, whoa, stop, pump the brakes. This is a functional programming language, right? You know, use polymorphism, use recursion, um, you know, find some simpler way of doing this that's encoded directly in the functions and doesn't rely on some uh, conceptual map that you have in your head, right? And just do it directly, which is also part of why some of the open source work that I did was around specifically enhancing protocols and structs and going that direction. So this is uh, Witchcraft and LG, so that you can encode things very directly. You can essentially write a configuration and then run it, uh, which is a very functional way of doing things just to prove to people like, you know, we can take your visitor pattern and then encode it in a data structure and then run the data structure, right? So. Brooklyn, you, you just mentioned a couple of the open source libraries that you've produced for the ecosystem. Uh, our next few questions are kind of more, more the sort of language level, architectural level. Uh, can you talk about some of the libraries that you're using, toys that you've built? <laughs> uh, yeah, explore some of those. I mean, when I, I, I think when we first met, it was at the big Elixir Conf, and you were talking about uh, your air handling library, so maybe we could start there. Yeah, for sure. So error handling library, uh, exceptional, which really came out of just, just 
from some real pain. Uh, uh, we were we had to use uh, a Erlang XML parsing library that was very under uh, under documented. So we had all of these different error states that could come out of it that were just a surprise, right? So there might be a different uh, arity tuple, right? You know, different size, different length. Uh, arguments swapped around, um, and the positionality of that was was really painful. We also had a couple of people on the team with a more hassle background who wanted to have something that just sort of flowed so you didn't have to take the output, stick into a case, and then check each version. They wanted to handle all their error handling at the very bottom and continue flowing uh, optimistically through the rest in the middle. So I took a weekend and wrote um, uh, Exceptional, which lets you do just that. So it uh, lets you do a couple different styles of error handling and keeps you on, on the happy path. So you can act as if, or you know, write your code as if everything was the success case and then handle your errors later. Your errors are encouraged to be uh, structs so that you can pull different keys out. Uh, if you're using this in Phoenix, then if you eventually raise one of these structs, because uh, exceptions are just structs, right? special keys so when you raise that and even give it a plug status so it can raise a 422 or a 501 or you know whatever uh http code um cool. with a message for the user which is yeah it's pretty great and then some ways of getting in and out of the the more traditional systems and that's probably the library you know it's took the least amount of time of of the suite that i've written uh and it's the one that i get the most fan mail about because it just solves a, a basic problem of i don't want to have to do error handling every three seconds i just want to handle this later i want to push the possible error states up to the callers because it has more context this is happening in a helper it'll have more context about what's going on and then it can handle it more appropriately rather than raising and wrapping that in uh, uh in a catch right or in a rescue while we're in here, I guess, you know, I alluded to this this other suite of tools that I've written. Um, I also bootstrapped up uh, a lot of stuff from the Haskell and OCaml uh, ecosystems uh, as well, which a lot of people in Phoenix uh, are more familiar with these pan these this this style from specifically Elm, which is again Haskell-like. So you know, either's and maybe's and uh, results types and you know things like that. Uh, and then for anyone who has a Haskell background, there's also you know state monads and uh, writers and, and what have you. But I always found working with protocols to be a little bit painful because you know the, the most common one, enum versus enumerable. I have to remember that my new struct needs an enumerable protocol, but then I will be able to, to make use of that. Why can't they just have the same name? Um, yeah, I'm not sure I actually knew that there was a difference. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, uh, enumerable is the, um, they can't have a name space collision, right? So right. enumerable is where you define it, and then enum is, is where you actually use it. So for each one of these, you'll need to define two modules, which other than just, you know, don't repeat yourself is, you know, you have this cognitive overhead of having to remember all this extra stuff. So I'm writing this library where you have to, you know, you have one of these for lots of different things, for functors, you know, things that are mappable or foldable or traversable structures or uh, monoids, so things that you can add together over and over and over again. Uh, and not have to worry about, uh, you know, they're always appendable, right? Uh, so that would have been a lot of this duplication. So wrapped that in a library to give it the same name, and you can define properties on it. So like this, you know, you can always add more of the same thing onto it, uh, like doing uh, numeric addition or string appending, right? So you can define those properties in there as well, generate some test cases, basically, which then let us build uh, Witchcraft, which has 
you know, the more classic, you know, the things you, you hear from uh, Haskellers about, you know, monads and, you know, and whatnot. So, uh, and arrows and co-monads and, you know, all, all the, all, all those buzzwords and LG, which has the actual data structure. So it's LG for an algebraic data type, which can be used both for this style and then also as a nice way to build uh, just a different set, syntax for building structs that uh, reads nicely and doing nested structures as well. And I guess to add on, because, because you just went through several libraries that you, you've built and you're using most of these in, I, I imagine, a Phoenix environment, like you're building on top of Phoenix applications, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the primary use case, because a lot of people hear that and go, oh, that sounds like way more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, the main use case for this is doing things like, you know, you have a map, you know, enum.map. But I want that to be, um, you know, I need to use a bunch of things in parallel. So we have an async map in Witchcraft where it works the same way and things just happen in parallel. You don't have to wrap everything in a task.async. So it's just keeping it a little bit cleaner, a little bit more about the uh, semantics rather than the like the operational, I will do this, then this, then this, then this, right? And kind of keeping the flow more. Uh, so using that in Phoenix, because it's totally, you know, has nothing to do with HTTP, stuff like that, you can absolutely use it in Phoenix or any Elixir project. These are the basic building blocks, really, of uh, FP. And especially the one that I didn't mention, uh, Quark, which has all the classic uh, functional combinators or classic functions in it that I was actually really surprised didn't come in the standard library, yeah. right? Flipping arguments or having a constant function, um, having something where you can do currying, all of that stuff was, was surprising to not have. So we added it in and it turns out to be very useful in lots of places uh, in Phoenix too. Very, very cool. And I'm going to give us a time check here. We've got a few minutes left. So, uh, Eric, if you want to take us through our uh, our last few questions, and then we'll give Brooklyn a chance to uh, uh, you know tell the audience where they can find her. And uh, uh, you've got a ton of videos online, like lots and lots of vi uh, conference videos. You're extremely uh, uh, a great contributor to the community, so uh, we'll, we'll plug some of that as well. But Eric, do you want to maybe take us through some of these closing out questions? Yeah, I guess. Uh, so the for our last two questions, um, are there any cool features of OTP that you might be using? I don't know, any any advanced supervisor stuff or anything like that? Uh, so haven't really used too much of the advanced OTP stuff other than playing around, right, for day-to-day -day stuff. Yeah. Haven't found it, uh, haven't found the need for it, though it's nice to know that it's there. Really, really like, um, oh geez, what's it called? It's completely, I'm blanking. The flow library, GenStage. Right. GenStage is very, 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 but for most things, like if you're just setting up, you know, the first version or an MVP of an app, you probably won't need most, most of that stuff. And the built-in supervision, in Phoenix is sufficient. And yeah. then tweaking it is usually usually pretty straightforward. OTP, because people usually think of OTP as the like the gen libraries. Uh, but it's actually the you know it's the entire platform. It's the virtual machine, the language itself, all this stuff. So I will take this question in a bit of a different direction. I love that uh, Elixir is um, has borrowed a lot of the cool stuff from a variety of different languages, including macros. Right from from yep. uh, so language is homoiconic, and you can build 
extensions to the language as much as you need or want. Um, on a, I, you know, two rules of macro club. One, don't use macros. Two, don't use macros. Um, but if you're on a deadline and you're writing a lot of boilerplates, you can stick some of that in macros and, and clean it up and move very, very quickly and then go back later yeah. um, and break it out, right? You're talking um, to or, the smart logic macro king over here. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Remote high five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they're, you know, people discover macros and then just go wild with them. So, I mean, you know, remember the two <laughs> rules of macro club, um, but uh, super, super powerful and very easy to write um, uh, parts of your application as a DSL. So that it's very readable, your business logic, and do some domain-driven design that way is very, very nice. So yeah. would recommend. And then, uh, you know, having people poke around in uh, as many of the dark corners of the standard library as possible. People immediately go to uh, Enum, look at the rest of it. Uh, yeah. There's a lot in there that people don't explore. Yeah, especially the uh, SSH server. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So something that I usually do when teaching will build up a um, fully peer-to-peer -peer, uh, CLI chat client from scratch, and cool. it just blows people's minds. But it's like one module. It's a. It's literally a, a gen server, and, and you're done. Yeah. We can talk about that on the text podcast that Eric's about to start. Awesome. <laughs> And I guess the, our last question, uh, if there's one tip that you could get give to developers who are or will be soon running uh, Elixir in production, what would it be? Number one, has great developer experience. Have fun, play, explore. You don't have to use all the features just because they're there, which is what everyone does at first. It's, you know, it's this big you know, toolbox with lots of things. Play around, but just use the stuff that you need, and you'll be happier for not having introduced lots of moving pieces. And but really do go spelunking into those uh, into those tools on side projects for sure. Great, this has been uh, an awesome episode, Brooklyn. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, last thing before you go, uh, where can the audience find you? How should they contact you? Why should they contact you or not? Yeah. Uh, so I am Xpeed pretty much everywhere on the internet. That's E X P E D E. So Twitter, GitHub you know, et cetera. Uh, email, pretty straightforward. Hello at brooklynzelenka.com. Uh, drop me a line for pretty much anything. I'm usually, you know, fairly good at getting back to people unless it's like a larger question. Like um, I have one person asking, you know, how can I use category theory, which is you know, an aspect of math in my day-to-day -day programming. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to wait on that one a little bit. <laughs> but usually get back to people a little bit faster than that. Um, and even, you know, any questions about uh, Elixir, my experience with it, other tools that they might find useful for plugging into their application. These days I'm working a lot in uh, blockchain. People are curious about that. Always happy to talk about that as well. <laughs> Yeah, Justice I, is our uh, blockchain fanatic. I know. I, we, we almost had a blockchain conversation here instead of uh, <laughs> But we have a theme and we're sticking to it. Elixir in production. This has been a conversation with Brooklyn Zelenka, everybody. Thank you so much for your time, Brooklyn. Thank you for having me. Once again, this has been Smart Software with Smart Logic. Join us for our next episode as we continue our series exploring Elixir in production. And remember, alchemists, keep on trucking.